prime suspect in a case of... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Child sexual abuse and murder that horrified Belgium. Prosecutors say that Mark Dutroux has now confessed to leaving two young girls to starve to death and to kidnapping two others. His wife, who, like her husband, has been jailed before for pedophilia, is also being questioned. As the crowds gathered outside of Brussels courthouse, police investigating the disappearance of over a dozen young girls brought in two of four more suspects, including Michelle Lillier, who's allegedly followed Dutroux's example and confessed. The two girls known to be dead had been missing since last year. Their bodies dug up this week after Dutroux led police to the backyard of one of his homes. But the 40-year-old jobless electrician owns many more properties, and all are now under intensive investigation. The hope in Brussels is that the authorities have finally cracked a major pedophile ring. Hope first felt just days ago, when two girls were found alive in a secret concrete cellar in another of Dutroux's homes. Since their release, the girls, both teenagers, have allegedly told police an horrific tale of sexual abuse and torture. The investigation is now focusing on the fate of two older teenagers, kidnapped allegedly also by Dutroux last year. After Dutroux's previous conviction for paedophilia, he served just three years, released early four years ago for good behaviour. Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Mouse and welcome back to my channel. Today's video is actually part two of the Mark Dutroux case. And before we delve any deeper into part two in this case, I'd just like to apologize for my mispronunciation of Michelle Lelivre's name in part one, where I pronounce his name as Michael instead of Michelle. If you've just clicked on this video and haven't seen part one, this is actually part two of a three-part series covering the Mark Dutroux case. There's a link to go watch part one in the description down below. I'd just like to point out this video has not been made to cause disrespect or anything like that. It's just been made to spread awareness about this case by compiling information from various different public sources on the internet. The theories discussed in this mini-series are just that, theories. They are not fact. They do not necessarily represent the views of myself or any of the officers and authorities involved in this case or anybody involved in this case. Again, they are just theories and are not fact and should not be taken as fact. As always, I ask that you remain respectful when commenting down below and discussing this case. And all that being said, let's delve straight back into it. We're going to start part two by discussing the judge that was responsible for rescuing the two missing girls, who we have called Georgia and Francis for the purpose of this series and for protecting their identity. I did see some comments on part one a bit confused. Um, I have protected the identity of the surviving victims in this case, 
um, and I have used the real names of the victims that have unfortunately perished at the hands of Mark Dutroux. I have done this just out of respect and because I'm sure these girls who are now grown up don't want to be constantly reminded of this traumatic event that happened to them. The judge's name who found Georgia and Francis was called Judge Jean-Marc Connerot. Judge Connerot was seen as almost a hero by the Belgian public for his part in rescuing the two missing girls and for his part in investigating the Dutroux case. Judge Connerot was assigned to this case as the investigating judge or investigating magistrate and we're actually going to discuss how the legal system works in Belgium a little bit later on because it operates in a different way than the US and UK legal systems. But don't worry, I'll try and keep it brief and try not to be boring about it. The public had placed their trust in Judge Connerot because they believed that Mark Dutroux's crimes went on for so long, so undetected, uh, due to him being protected by high-level members of government or high-level members of the policing system. And Judge Connerot came in and was like, you know, investigating and cracking open the case and like, you know, doing his job really, really well and getting results, which is what the public saw. And it's why the public considered him to be a hero because he was going against the cover-up that they suspected that was taking place. In the public's eyes, Judge Connerot was finally shedding light and opening up this case to the public, despite the protection from higher up, going against the suspected corrupt government and justice systems. Judge Jean-Marc Connerot was born in 1948, and he joined the legal bar in Belgium when he was 31 in 1979. He was actually put in charge of the investigation into the assassination of André Coules, who was a Belgian politician, an understandably massive case. As a well-trusted judge by the public following that investigation, it seemed like a good move to assign the Dutroux case and subsequent investigation to Judge Connerot. However, two months and one day after Mark Dutroux's arrest, Judge Connerot was actually removed from the case. He was removed as the investigating judge. And he was removed by Belgium's highest acting court on the 14th of October, 1996. To understand why exactly Judge Connerot was removed from the Dutroux case, we first have to take a quick look at how the judiciary system works in Belgium. The highest court in the Belgium judiciary system is called the Cour de Cassation, and it was this court that removed Judge Connerot from the case. This removal stems from the fact that Judge Connerot was invited to a fundraising dinner for the families of the victims of Mark Dutroux, and Judge Connerot attended this benefit dinner. This benefit dinner was organized to raise funds for the families and a lot of people from the Belgium legal system actually attended. And at this benefit dinner as a thank you for the work that Justice Connerot had done so far and for rescuing the girls and his investigative work, the families wanted to give him a gift and they gave him a pen which was worth about 27 euros. The judge only stayed at the benefit dinner for about an hour and in that time he was given a plate of spaghetti. Very important to note, Judge Connerot was sure not to speak or make any contact with the two victims, Georgia or Francis, who were both present at this dinner. Judge Connerot's wife was presented with some flowers. Due to the spaghetti that Judge Connerot was given to eat at this benefit dinner, this event is known as the Spaghetti Affair. Under the Belgium Judicial Code, Article 8-8, it reads, 
Any judge may be recused, which means removed from a case, for the following reasons. And under part 8 of article 828, it goes on to say a judge can be removed if, from the beginning of the trial, he has been received by a party at his own expense or has approved of him gifts. Now, what does all this mean? It means that because Judge Connerot had attended this benefit dinner and he had been presented with a gift, which was the pen, it meant that he would have to be recused due to a bias that may present itself as a result of these gifts. Or as the highest court said, it could mean a conflict of interest for Judge Connerot in the Mark to True case. Interestingly, the chief prosecutor, Michelle Borlet, was also in attendance of this benefit dinner and he was also presented with a pen and his wife was given some flowers and he was given spaghetti. However, a defense request to bar the chief prosecutor from continuing on working on the case was actually denied by the high court, which is a bit strange if you think about it because they had approved the removal of Judge Connerot for the exact same reasons, and the chief prosecutor, you know, had done the exact same thing as the judge, but he wasn't affected by it. It's a bit weird in my opinion. Michelle Bollet remained as the chief prosecutor in the Mark to True case for the remainder of the investigation. And this was despite the spaghetti affair. However, in a memoir that Michelle Boulet would go on to write after this entire case had taken place, he said that at the time of the investigation, his phones were actually tapped by who knows, by, he suspects, somebody higher up in government. And this was all in an attempt to catch him tripping up so that they could remove him legally from the case. Why they didn't remove him from the case during the spaghetti affair, I don't know, but he remained on the case. Michel Borlet was also highly regarded by the Belgian public as he had worked with Judge Connerot on the previous assassination case. And he also worked really close with Judge Connerot on the Dutroux case and had a major part in rescuing the girls. Now, this is interesting. The politicians in Belgium actually pleaded with the highest courts to dismiss these allegations of uh, a bias for Judge Connerot after the spaghetti affair and pleaded with them not to remove him as the judge. Largely due to the fact that Judge Connerot was trusted by the Belgian public and I believe, you know, whatever the whatever Judge Conrad would find, the Belgian public would believe. And of course, the Belgian public had no trust in the government or justice systems at this point. So it seems, it seemed like a good idea to keep Judge Conrad on the case, to keep the public on the government's side. However, the High Court went against this and they just, they removed Judge Conorot regardless. On that very same day, as a direct result of Judge Conorot being removed from the case, thousands of people took to the streets of Belgium, carrying flags which read, I'm ashamed to be Belgian. Six days later, on the 20th of October, 1996, the biggest protest march in the history of Belgium commenced with over 300,000 people taking part, which is 3% of the Belgian population. The march took place in Belgium's capital, Brussels, and apparently people traveled from all over the country to take part in the protests. 
The footage from these protests is actually insane. Protesters used symbolism that stemmed from Queen Fabiola wearing white to her husband's funeral, donning white clothes, white face paint, and white balloons. The color white to the people of Belgium was a symbol of hope. According to some sources, the fire brigade during this march actually turns their hoses on the federal parliament buildings to symbolically cleanse it. The people of Belgium were angry and wanted change to come about to the justice system there. As a result of these protests, a parliamentary inquiry into the true case was formed and that inquiry took 17 months to complete. This inquiry was to determine whether Mark Dutroux's claims of having contacts high up in the government and justice system were true or not. It was named the Dutroux Nihau Commission and I'll delve into who Nihau was later on in this case. Nihao is a key character in the conspiracies that follow this case. During this entire inquiry, all the suspects remained remanded in prison pending trial. Interestingly, in Belgium, you can actually be held in custody indefinitely, although it largely depends on the severity and complexities of the case you're being held for. This meant that Mark, Michelle Martin, and Michelle Lelivre could be held in custody indefinitely until the courts had a strong enough case against them to prosecute them. The findings of the parliamentary inquiry were made public in February of 1998 and these results absolutely outraged the Belgian public. The report says that the police involved had behaved with incompetence, amateurism, and negligence. It goes on to say that the profound deficiencies in the judicial and police systems works in Mark Dutroux's favor, allowing him to profit from corruption, sloppiness, and incompetence. The commission determined that the girls Julie and Melissa could have been absolutely rescued by the police, and the incompetence that rooted itself in the police force is largely responsible for allowing the two girls to remain unfound and subsequently perish. Further to this, it claims that there's no evidence of a high-level cover-up or conspiracy and that Mark Dutroux was not at the center of any network, contrary to his claims. The establishment and this commission insist that Mark Dutroux acted alone in his crimes. Although, if you think about it, if there's a government cover-up at play, of course politicians would be able to misconstrue this inquiry to yield results that they wanted and to push their own agenda. The public and parents of the victims were angry at this inquiry due to its lack of blame on political leaders in the country who ultimately, in their view, were just protecting themselves. Paul Marshall, the father of Anne Marshall, told the media that nothing fundamental has changed. Once more, the traditional coalition parties have succeeded in protecting themselves. This entire case was quickly becoming very, very political. Gino Russo, who is the father of eight-year-old Melissa, also told media that the conclusions of this inquiry made no sense. After all, the police had searched Mark's house multiple times while Melissa and Julie were still alive and trapped in the dungeon. But despite the fact that the officer had heard children's cries, they still found nothing. And despite Mark's criminal record, which literally states that he has previously kidnapped girls and raped girls, they still 
found nothing. To the parents of the victims, this was less evidence of police incompetence and more evidence of a police cover-up. Now let's talk about the judge who was appointed to the Mark to True case and who replaced Judge Connerot after Judge Connerot was removed. This was a judge called Judge Jack Langlois. And surprisingly, this was Judge Langlois' first case ever as a judge. Further to this, it is actually well known within the judicial system that Judge Langlois and the Chief Prosecutor Michelle Borlay actually had a very rocky relationship, both of them having different views of the case and often disagreeing on many key parts in the case. As I said earlier, Michelle Boulay and Judge Connerot had a very good working relationship and had worked together on previous cases and had established a good, efficient dynamic between them. However, with Judge Connerot being removed from the case, Michelle Boulay was thrown into disarray. There was an outcry from the parents of the victims due to the appointment of this new judge, but their cries fell on closed ears. As I said in part one, Mark DeTrue was a master manipulator and he knew how to get what he wanted from people. He knew how to play the long game. In the two years that Mark DeTrue had been in prison from his arrest in 1996 up until 1998, he became the model prisoner. He was calm, he was polite, he was relaxed, he was everything that you wanted a prisoner to be, cooperative and friendly and he never caused any trouble in prison. His good behavior actually led to further police incompetence, which further highlighted and underlined the results of the parliamentary inquiry. The police actually, as a result of Mark Dutroux's good behavior, started to relax the security surrounding him. Now, under Belgian law, it is actually a prisoner's legal right to inspect the investigation dossier in their case, if they are pending trial. And Mark exercised this right on the 23rd of April, 1998, just a few months after the results of the parliamentary inquiry were made public. And he was taken to inspect the investigation dossier in the courthouse of Neuf Chateau. As a result of this relaxed security, Mark Dutroux's handcuffs were actually removed while he was inspecting the dossier. Mark was being watched by two police officers while he inspected the dossier, and for some reason and somehow, Mark knew that at some point during this inspection of the dossier, one of the police officers would leave to go do an errand. I'm unsure what exactly that errand actually was. Some sources say that this police officer went on a break, and others say they went on an errand, it's inconclusive. When that opportunity arose and with his handcuffs removed, Mark Dutroux overpowered the only remaining police officer that was watching over him. He stole the policeman's gun before escaping. Mark then used this gun to force a man at gunpoint to give him his car before he drove off into the forest surrounding Neuf Chateau. Europe's most notorious and dangerous criminal was now at large. He was wearing prisoners' clothes, white trainers, and had a moustache that was more famous than that of the King of Belgiums. The police in Belgium, France, and Luxembourg closed the borders. Those are the surrounding countries around Belgium, and they launched a massive investigation and search party looking for 
marks a true and massive manhunt was launched. Some sources say that the countries surrounding did stricter border checks and didn't close the borders, but I believe the borders were closed for the period that Mark true was on the loose. From the offset, calls for the Prime Minister of Belgium to resign were already coming in due to Mark true's escape. After all, how could uh, the justice system and the government let this man escape. How could they let this happen? The family's victims told media that the high-level cover-up in this case caused them to speculate that Mark Dutroux's escape could mean that there would never be a trial and the full facts of what truly happened will never be publicly known. What errand did this police officer have to go on that meant leaving Europe's most dangerous prisoner alone with one policeman and with no handcuffs on? Why was it so easy for Mark Dutroux to escape? You can see how it had been easy for people to jump to the conclusion that this escape was orchestrated by the Belgium establishment in an attempt to cover their tracks. As the victims' families told the media, if Mark Dutroux escapes fully, then a full trial will never take place. A trial that could expose a hidden child prostitution ring rooted deep in the Belgium establishment. Thankfully, Mark Dutroux was recaptured captured a few hours after he escaped after he was seen by a park ranger. Some theorists believe that the establishment realized the fallout from losing Mark Dutroux and from Mark Dutroux's escape being successful would cause a revolution and it would be easier to persuade the public and keep the public on the government's side if Mark Dutroux went to trial. After all, according to these theorists, the government must have other ways of covering their tracks. Calls for the resignation of the police chief, the minister of justice and the minister of interior were taken very, very seriously. And subsequently, all three of the people in those positions resigned as a direct result of Mark Dutroux's escape. Two years after the escape attempt, Mark Dutroux was sentenced in the year 2000 to five years in prison for assaulting a police officer during this escape. He was escorted in a bulletproof vest and by 10 police officers to the courtroom where he pled guilty for this charge. Now, interestingly, escaping from custody is not actually a criminal offense in Belgium. Mark Dutroux in that same year was further sentenced to an additional five years in prison on charges of assault and vehicle theft, all crimes that had taken place during his escape attempt. Now, let's go back and talk about a key player in this case. Fairly soon, after his arrest in 1996, Michel Lelivre actually implicated a Belgian businessman who was called Jean-Michel Nihau in this case. Michel Lelivre told the authorities back in 1996 upon his initial arrests that the girls had been kidnapped to order. The Brussels businessman Jean-Michel Nihau was accused by Michel Lelivre as being the man who had ordered these girls. Judge Connerot actually believed that Jean-Michel Nihau was actually the brains behind the entire operation. And Mark was just a prawn in this operation, kind of like a the man that did the dirty work. Jean-Michel was subsequently arrested on suspicion of having an involvement in the kidnappings. Now it's important to note that in some sources, Jean-Michel Nihau is just called Michel Nihau, uh, but I believe his full name is actually Jean-Michel Nihau. However, soon after Judge Connerot began investigating 
denying Michelle Oliver's claims, Michelle Oliver actually stopped cooperating with the investigators. And this was due to the fact that he had allegedly started receiving death threats. Then, shockingly, Judge Conorat was removed as the investigating judge in this case by the highest Belgium court. This led many theorists and members of the public to speculate whether high-up government officials had removed Judge Conorot from the case in order to protect themselves and to stop Judge Conorot investigating any further. Jean-Michel Niehau allegedly had contacts high up in the establishment, contacts which he regularly boasted about. So this particular theory that Judge Conorot was removed by high-up officials to prevent him from uncovering the truth, it isn't difficult to believe. Again, throughout this case, I just have to point out that the theories that I'm discussing are just theories and are not fact and do not represent the views of myself or any officials working on this case or any party involved in this case. After both Jean-Michel Niehau and Marc Dutroux were arrested, they were both sent to the same prison. And in that prison, they were allowed to freely mix in the courtyard um, which meant that they could, you know, have discussions and talk to one another in the courtyard. And it is believed that they communicated frequently and hatched some kind of a plan. Just five months after Jean-Michel Niehau was arrested, he was set free. The conspiracy of high-level corruption and a high-level cover-up in this case is not only supported by a lot of factors and some circumstantial evidence alluding to the fact that there's a conspiracy, but as I said earlier, it is also a conspiracy that the majority of the Belgian public actually believed uh, to the time this case was taking place. Olenka Frenkel wrote in an article in The Guardian in 2002 that she actually met with Jean-Michel in a restaurant in Brussels. I believe this encounter actually took place in the same year the article was written in 2002. Olenka Frenkel is an outstanding reporter that has covered the Mark True case in a lot of detail. I've referenced and sourced a lot of information used in this case from Olenka's articles so I do advise if you want to investigate this further to look at the sources that I've left in the description down below. Olenka was actually working on a documentary for the BBC called The Belgian X-Files, which went over what had happened so far in the case and discussed numerous allegations of a child prostitution ring allegations that we'll delve into further on in this case. And as part of this documentary, she arranged an interview with Jean-Michel Niehau. When Olenka walked into the restaurant in Brussels, Jean-Michel Niehau confidently introduced himself, and I quote, as the monster of Belgium. Jean-Michel went on to tell Olenka that he was confident that he would never go to trial and the evidence against him would never be heard by a jury. Again, let's go back to Judge Conorot's initial suspicions that Jean-Michel Niehau was actually the brains behind this entire operation. He suspected that Jean-Michel was actually the middleman who ordered the girls from Marc Dutroux and his little gang of accomplices. Jean-Michel ordered these girls to then sell into child prostitution selling the children to high-level members of government and the police force in Belgium. Jean-Michel was actually quite well known for attending sex parties in the 70s and 80s. And witnesses that we'll discuss later on in this case actually claim that Jean-Michel and Marc Dutroux were present at, and also present at these sex parties, were minors and high-level members of the government. Further, he suspected that jean 
Shell also sold children on into slavery, smuggling them across the borders, potentially in the cars and vehicles that he also smuggled across the borders. This, in turn, would provide Mark Dutroux with all the funds he needed to buy the seven houses that he owned, despite the fact that he was living just on benefits. And it would have made John Michelle very, very rich. Again, this is all suspicions from Judge Connerot. According to data collected by the European Commission, 21 million people are estimated to be victims of forced labor across the world, with over 54% of those victims being used for sexual exploitation purposes, 51% of those victims being adult women. 20% being girls, 21% being adult men, and 8% being boys. This means, according to this data, that globally there are 4.2 million girls that are estimated to be victims of forced labor, including sexual exploitation. Between 2013 and 2014, 15,864 victims of human trafficking inside the EU were rescued, of which 76% were female. Two out of the three rescued victims from within the EU were trafficked for sexual exploitation purposes, with 21% of those victims being trafficked for forced labor, and 12% being trafficked for organ harvesting, domestic servitude, and for begging. The majority of identified victims rescued from within the EU originate from countries also inside the EU. Jean-Michel went on to tell Alenka confidently that he had information about the most important people in the Belgium establishment, that if revealed, would bring the entire Belgian government down. It is believed that Jean-Michel Niehau had intended for Marc Dutroux to take the fall for what had happened, and that he would use his high-level contacts to avoid being prosecuted. Jean-Michel's allusions to having blackmail against high-ranking government officials, presumably footage of them engaging in sexual acts with minors, actually lined up with Marc Dutroux's allegations that there was a larger network of child prostitution and trafficking at play. In January, of 2003, the courts actually dismissed the Detroit Nihau case. The case had actually been split in two, two years prior in the year 2001, uh, so that there would be a separate Detroit file and a separate Detroit Nihau file, and this allowed a separate investigation into the Detroit case. This meant that the charges against Jean-Michel Nihau were dropped. However, just five months later, in May of 2003, the courts overturned the dismissal of the Nihau case, and Jean-Michel Nihau was actually charged with gang formation, kidnapping, dealing stolen cars, document forgery, and drug trafficking. And finally, the date was set for the trial of the century. Seven and a half years after Mark Dutroux's arrest, seven and a half years after Georgia and Francis were found alive and rescued. The date was set for the 1st of March 2004 for the trial to commence. Interestingly, the Belgian authorities had actually built a dedicated courtroom just for the Marc Dutroux case and just for the trial. According to the French newspaper Le Monde, they estimated there to be somewhere between one and a half thousand to three thousand reporters flocking from all over the world to attend the trial. However, the courtroom that had been especially built for the trial only contained 16 seats for the press. Mark Dutroux stood trial for the kidnapping and raping of six girls between 1995 and 1996, and of murdering two out of the four girls who perished, and murdering Bernard 
Weinstein. At the time of the trial, an opinion poll was conducted that found that allegedly two out of three Belgians believed that Mark Dutroux was being protected by very highly placed people. In an extraordinary trial, over 500 people were summoned to testify in court. The trial was set to be a trial by jury and took place in the capital of the Belgian province of Luxembourg, Arlon. Over 1,340 journalists flocked from all over the world to the Belgian city. Marc Dutroux, Michel Martin, Michel Livre, and Jean-Michel Nihau were all placed behind bulletproof glass. Only 16 of the 1,340 journalists that attended were permitted access to the courtroom with only 200 journalists being permitted into the court's press room to watch the trial take place via closed-circuit television. Everyone else had to wait outside for a verdict. The trial itself lasted 16 weeks, with over 569 being called to testify in this case. In total, the testimonies lasted over 360 hours. Interestingly, many of the witnesses that had been called to testify were only called due to association by the press. Most of them had never had any contacts with the accused and had nothing important to say that could help the case. In total, the attorney spoke for 75 hours. The jury was made up of 12 people who had to painstakingly answer 243 questions in total regarding the guilt or innocence of the accused. They deliberated for 76 hours. In the first week of the trial, the authorities actually placed a media ban on the printing of Mark Dutroux's face in Belgium newspapers for privacy reasons, a ban which stayed in effect up until the 9th of March 2004. According to some sources, over 195 police officers were brought into the town to ensure the safety and security of the 15,000 inhabitants that lived there. From the offset of this trial, Mark Dutroux insisted and maintained that he was part of a child sex prostitution ring that was rooted deep within the Belgium establishment. Now, the trial was being presided over by a judge called Judge Stefan Goch. For those of you who are not familiar with the inquisitorial system of law and are confused as to why Judge Langlois, who was Judge Connerot's replacement, was not presiding over the case, an investigating judge, which is what Judge Connerot and Judge Langlois were, is a judge who carries out pre-trial investigations into allegations of crime and in some cases make a recommendation for prosecution. The investigating judge oversees ongoing criminal investigations and they play a particularly important part in the French judiciary system, which is what the Belgian judiciary system is based upon. The investigating judge issues search warrants, authorizes wiretaps, makes decisions on pre-trial detention, interrogates the accused persons, questions witnesses, examines evidence, and compiles a dossier of evidence in preparation for a trial. You can see just how important the investigating judge is in a case, and you can see why it was so detrimental to the public that Judge Connerot was removed from this case. Now, the presiding judge in a case is the judge that presides over court proceedings. And in this case, Judge Stefan Goch 
was the judge that presided over the trial. Now in common law systems known as the adversarial systems, which is the practice we have here in the UK and over in the US, the presiding judge can be viewed as more of a referee in the trial, for lack of a better expression. The judge ensures that the information presented to the jury by the prosecution and the defense is done so lawfully and within legal code. The jury is made up of citizens and it is down to them to be the fact finder in the case and to come to a verdict. However, ultimately the presiding judge is the person that finalizes and has the final say on the sentence. In an inquisitorial system, which is otherwise known as civil law, which is commonplace in Europe, excluding the UK, there is actually no jury and it is down to the presiding judge to be the fact finder and apply the law to the case the judge is the mouth of the law. Obviously, this is a simplification of the two systems, which are both extremely complex. I advise you do your own research into the differences of judiciary systems across the world if you are so interested. You'll be aware in this case, however, that this case was a trial by jury taking place under the inquisitorial system. In Belgium, there is only one court that is permitted to have a trial with a jury. And that court is the highest criminal court in Belgium and only deals with the most serious of crimes. It's called the Court of Assises and is the highest Belgian court with criminal jurisdiction. And it is the only court that can sentence somebody with the maximum sentence of life in prison. It is important to know that this court doesn't have permanent members. New judges and new members of law are assembled for each trial as it comes, which means that there is a new group of people in the court of Assisi's every time. And that was the case in the Marc de True case, with the presiding judge being Judge Stefan Goch. Along with this presiding judge, otherwise known as the president, there are also two other judges that assist the judge, and these are known as the assessors. The jury itself is made up, as I've said, of 12 people who are selected at complete random from the electoral rolls. The jury must not have more than eight members of the same sex, and each jury member must be between the ages of 28 and 65 years old. The difference between how this jury operates is not only that they have to find all the facts and they have to come to a verdict, they also have a say in the sentencing. On Tuesday the 20th of April 2004, the jurors in this trial made a very rare move. After Georgia had given her testimony, Georgia being one of the girls that had been rescued from Mark DeTrue's dungeon, a woman in the jury suddenly stood up. She told the courts that she was speaking on behalf of the other jurors before turning to face the presiding judge directly and addressing him directly, addressing Stephen Gok directly. She said, We would like to express our frustration and we regret that some of the witnesses who have to repeat themselves are heard for a long time while other testimonies which seem more interesting to us are shortened for time reasons. I think our IQ is far from being insufficient. It was an opportunity to say it today because we feel that it is very badly done. I would like you to be sensitive to our requests. Judge Stefan Goch's reply to this was, but my only concern is not to finish too late. Surely the outcome of such a pinnacle trial which could reveal a deeply rooted child prostitution and child trafficking ring deep within the Belgium society 
Surely the results of that far outweighs the need for the court to adjourn on time or not. But of course, many theorists believe that Judge Stephen Goch was being manipulated or blackmailed by high-level members of government. According to the members of jury and members of the public that were present, it seemed as if Stephen Goch didn't really want to delve deep into the alleged sex ring. The judge allegedly conducted all questioning and interrogations with closed questions, with the parents of the victims in this case ultimately refusing to attend what they called a mock trial. Allegedly, three quarters of the questions asked in the trials were answered with, we don't know, but we're going to investigate this further in the true file by the members of the court, with the other questions being closed questions, simple yes or no. On the 14th of June 2004, three and a half months since the trial began, the jury went into seclusion so that they could reach their verdict on Mark Dutroux, Michelle Martin, Michelle Lelivre, and Jean-Michel Niehau. After 72 hours of deliberation, three days, on the 17th of June 2004, the jury returns their verdicts to the court. Mark Dutroux was found guilty on all charges. The homicide of Anne-Michelle, F.G. Lambricks, and Bernard Wine. Einstein, kidnapping, auto theft, the production of child indecent images, child sexual abuse, attempted murder, attempted abduction, molestation, and a further three charges of rape of Slovakian women. Michelle Martin was found guilty of being an accomplice to homicide and kidnapping, with Michelle Lelivre being found guilty on the same charges. Interestingly, the jury was unable to reach a verdict on Jean-Michel Niehau. However, some sources say that the jury did actually reach a guilty verdict on Jean-Michel Niehau, but the court decided to ignore this and decided to go with the minority in the jury. It wasn't a unanimous verdict, so the court had the option with going with the minority, and apparently that's what they did. But again, that's just according to some sources. I couldn't find anything that completely, concretely said that that happened or not. Five days later, on Tuesday the 22nd of June 2004, the court delivered its sentencing. The death penalty was actually abolished in Belgium in 1996, the same year that Marc Dutroux was arrested, which meant that Marc was not eligible for such a sentencing. However, according to opinion polls, the majority of the Belgian public would allegedly have no problem with Marc Dutroux receiving the death penalty. Subsequently, the the highest criminal court in Belgium sentenced Marc Dutroux to the maximum penalty of life in prison. Michelle Martin was sentenced to just 30 years in prison. Michelle Olivera sentenced to just 25 years in prison. The jury was ordered to go back into seclusion to come to a verdict on Jean-Michel Niehau. Jean-Michel was subsequently acquitted of the kidnapping charges and was only found guilty on drug offenses and for forming a gang. He was sentenced to just five years in prison. The verdict and sentencing of Jean-Michel Niehau further fed him to the theorists conspiracy that there was a cover-up from high up in the Belgium government and establishment. Jean-Michel Niehau, Michel Martin and Michel Olivera were eligible for parole after serving just one-third of their sentence. Mark Dutroux will never be eligible for parole. At the time of the sentencing, according to some sources, 82% of Belgians who are aware of the case believe that there was an international paedophile network 
backed by and covered up by high-level members of the Belgium establishment. We're going to be delving deep into the conspiracies that surround this case that are supported by witness testimonies known as the X-Files in part three. We'll also be exploring the aftermath of such a monumental trial and whether reform was ever actually brought about. The finale episode in this mini-series, part three, will be out towards the end of this week. I'm really sorry that this part, part two, took so long to come out. YouTube was not approving it. I had to refilm some bits. I was all over the country. A lot of things didn't line up for this one to come out last week. Thank you so much for watching this episode in my Curious Case series. Don't forget to hit that like button if you found this video interesting and leave a comment down below telling me what you think so far in this case. Subscribe and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every time I post a new true crime video including part three in this series and with all that being said I will see you in the next video. Now, babe,